I first worked with Lane McNabb back in 2014, when she was what I call a baby designer. She was a one-woman band with a beautiful aesthetic that we defined as honest. Lane had recently transitioned from being an opera singer to interior design, and she was ready to take her firm to the next level. From this vantage point, the Berkeley-based founder and principal designer leads a team of nine doing a wide range of work that is as expansive and innovative as her vision. One of the things I'm most excited about is her use of unexpectedly sourced materials in her stunning new collection of furniture, Guild. Lane believes that the best way to take care of the planet is to say goodbye to disposable culture and to invest in quality that will last for generations. She is leading the conversation in creating heirlooms for a new era. I'm Lane McNabb, and this is a lesson on living your own story. Lane, what is your earliest memory of being creative? Well, I guess I have two answers for that. One would be sort of the more practical and sort of like childhood memories answer, which would be, I just remember probably age four or five doing plays and singing and dancing, but all for myself because I was an only child and it was just all in my room and just kind of entertaining myself that way. And then the more sort of woo-woo answer is that I feel like I sort of lived in my own head until I was like seven or eight anyway. (laughs) I have such clear memories of that sort of feeling of not being a part of this world and then slowly understanding, oh, the things I'm creating in my head aren't real. This is real. And that connection to the creative process has always been, and probably is for everyone, but I just feel pretty conscious of it when I'm doing it, has always been my sort of spiritual connection as well. And those are very early memories for me. So you feel like your creativity comes through you then? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's almost like that other world, you said you had to compare between realities, but it's almost like that other world is is more real in some cases. Yeah. We all probably, even as very young children, go through this process of, I don't know if acclimating is a word, but sort of slowly understanding, oh, this is the physical realm I live in. And it's just not something that we're we just forget or we're not conscious of it after a certain age or or maybe we were never fully conscious of it, but we just sort of exist in this world. And that connection to whatever came before or after, I feel like is so deeply tied to the creative process mm-hmm. that it's almost a deep form of meditation or a deep sense of spirituality. Yeah. I mean, it's we're coming from the realm of where ideas live. Yeah, And they begin in, in that unknown space and move into the physical. Great creatives are able to translate between realms and it's it's almost like they are inseparable, which yeah. in fact they are, which right. in fact they are. Yeah. You go through a process where you leave it and then you relearn it as you get mm-hmm. older. You kind of reawaken to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I always think about how Paul McCartney said he doesn't feel like he wrote yesterday someone else wrote it and he just like wrote it down. Yeah. 
And um, that's when you're really, and I guess athletes, although I have no reference for athletic endeavors, but athletes call (laughs) it (laughs) like being in the zone. That's very much kind of what it's like. And, And when I used to be in a different profession, which was singing, and I feel like intense sort of practice or performance also puts you in that headspace. And that's another sort of way of getting in the zone or, or connecting to that. Some people would say calling it spiritual is a little too woo-woo, but that's how it feels to me. I was told that I must, and I did, remove the word woo-woo from my oh. vocabulary, which oh, is no. fine. Yeah, by actually a coach of mine who said, why are you saying that? And I said, because some people aren't comfortable with the spirituality. And she said, why are you more concerned about their interpretation of your spirituality than your expression of it? And so I banished, mm -hmm, so I banished that from my words. And because I do live in the spiritual realm very much. And that year I quote unquote came out as spiritual, even though I was living that life. And even though that's how people described me, which I, I didn't really know, I started to just embrace and embody that. And it was a, it's a, was a wonderful shift. So I'll I'll start that shift now too. Then I will impart that gift to you. You mentioned the singing. That was your first profession. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I guess I had always sung very little and didn't know I had any ability for it, just did it. But I remember the first time I performed in front of other people, which really performed means like I went into my parents' dinner party and sang a song (laughs) very unprompted. And I think I was like six or seven or something. And I remember the reaction of everyone in the room was like, oh, wow. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I guess I can do, I guess I'm better than just like a little kid singing a song. And so I think at that point, my parents were always kind of getting me into choirs and getting me to sing and all that. But it wasn't really, I don't know, I didn't think of it as a legitimate career for most Mm -hmm. of my life. But I sang all through high school and, you know, did the lead in the high school musical and went on to college and performed on the side. And I was minoring in music in college, but I thought I would probably be a professor or something in English literature. I didn't know what I was going to do. My junior year, I won regional competition and decided to switch my major, just got a lot of feedback that I should really consider it professionally. And so I switched my major and majored in music and vocal performance and then went on to graduate school out in San Francisco. And then after I graduated, started performing and performed professionally for about maybe like eight or nine years. Well, Mm -hmm. longer than that. I performed for a little bit longer after I had kids, but in a reduced capacity. The funny thing is, I feel like I really did it more because I was given an instrument and I felt like I had a responsibility to use it. But I never loved singing actually the way I kind of love what I do now. And I remember when I was in graduate school overhearing a professor talking to a young student, probably a high schooler, and her parents and sort of saying, you know, if you don't have the bug for it, and that was her word, the bug, then really don't do it because Mm -hmm. it's not, and I remember, and I was already in graduate school. I was so committed. (laughs) I was like, 
oh no, I don't really have a blog, (laughs) but it was too late. You know, I was doing it and I did love parts of it, but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel, I I felt kind of unempowered as a performer, especially in the operatic world, which is what I was doing. You're performing music that was written in many cases, hundreds of years ago, and you're under the direction of a conductor and an artistic director. I just didn't feel like I had a lot of autonomy. And even though there are amazing skill sets that I developed and was given and learned and cultivated and that still I use on a daily basis today, it just wasn't where my heart was. How did you make the transition then from singing to interior design? A very old story that you hear a lot in this industry, but I guess I had always done interior design, but like everyone, just a hobby and just kind of liked it. And some of my friends from the opera will still remind me that I used to have design books open inside my music scores during rehearsals. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. We had a, a place in San Francisco in the early 2000s and we renovated it and I started working on that. And then we ended up moving to the East Bay and I started working on this home that we're still currently in. Well, another home and then this home. And when we bought our current house, which was around 2007, I started a blog a a year or two after that and was just documenting the renovation. And at the same time was working with a contractor that I had worked with on previous renovations and just really doing a deep dive into how renovations work and how construction works and learning how to project manage and sort of the nuts and bolts of it, as well as self-educating. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe, but at that time you couldn't really just get online and find as much information about things as you can now. And so I just would buy or rent books from the library or buy them and just start reading like crazy and books from the beautiful coffee table books to the nuts and bolts about like learning about antiques or how to tile of this or you know whatever (laughs) (laughs) I started bringing clients to this contractor to assist her with her project management I would do the design work the clients would pay me but it wasn't like I was really getting paid I mean it was kind of like a little bit and I would you know, get to learn through the process as well. Mm -hmm. The timeline starts to be a little fuzzy because I was singing for a while while I was doing this, but I know what happened was I had a client. This was not through the contractor. This was just kind of a friend of my husband's from childhood. And I did his bachelor condo and that Mm -hmm. project, it was the very early days of house. And because we're in the tech world out here in the Bay Area, I knew of House. My husband had said, oh, I've heard about this new website. You should get involved in it. And I, so I signed up for House. I put that project online as well as our home. And I started just getting a lot of hits from it. House was asking me to write articles. <laughs> I know it was really, I, I was really. The business was born. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And so then that Bachelor project actually got picked up by the Today Show website. Oh, my goodness. Totally randomly. I had taken those photos for it with my old Canon Rebel. You can actually see me in the reflection of the mirror. In the <laughs> <laughs> That got posted with like David Bromstad and like all these designers. And that was sort of my wake up call that, okay, this is happening. And then I started getting inquiries 
I hired someone to help me get my business side going, getting my software set up and just sort of advising me how to do this. And so mm-hmm. I did that. I made my first hire. And then not long after that, I got my first multi-million dollar project, which was really a lot of its timing, a lot of it's being open and a lot of it's just putting, you know, it's great. I put myself out there. And, but I, when I saw it taking off, I decided to really get in front of it. We're talking a lot today about the furniture line. This mm-hmm. is kind of part of the growth. So again, I've seen you move as a creative from, I wasn't there for this part, but from the opera singing <laughs> to the design, I was there for that part. The uh-huh. very yeah, you were. You were right? an instrumental part of it. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that as a pun. We... That's, that's a terrible oh, no. pun. I don't oh my do gosh, puns. that's hilarious. I don't, I'm I sorry. <laughs> so oh, I love it. Then we moved from that to, you know, you were zero, you were a one woman band. We went from one woman band to three person band at that point. And that then, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, you, we were in touch, but not really. You were doing your own thing. You were growing very rapidly. And then you came back and you were, I think at that point, Five-person five? band? Yeah, five-person five. band? Yeah. yeah. And now you're nine-person band, mm-hmm. and we've been really developing intellectual property. Yeah. And so right. the conversation has shifted, and this is really important for me with creatives, is I, I believe, and this is something we share in common, you're learning through your creativity. So it's coming through you. You're learning from it. You're also serving with it. Mm-hmm. And you have been developing furniture that is in – the category called sustainable, which is not a, you know, a terribly sexy word or eco-friendly. So I want to know what you use and I want to know why you decided that this was important. Why now? The sustainable name, I am very serious about and I'm very careful with it. And this gets a lot into more spiritual stuff, but I feel like there is a a tendency to use it right now as a greenwashing kind of marketing tool. And I think if you really are serious about it, as we are, it requires constant critical thinking and analysis and improvement. And that's what we're doing all the time. The more you know, the better you do. And when you know better, you do better. And that's what I'm constantly trying to do with this line and and I think succeeding, but it makes it incredibly hard. So the line I developed about three or so years ago, the sketches, again, I just sat down and in a week drew everything for the furniture line and then had them. and was like, now what do I do? We worked with a lot of local production workrooms. And because my firm had been shifting more and more towards sustainability or environmental stewardship and what we were proposing to clients, it was an easy choice to make to say, well, if this is what we're producing as something we are owning as ours, then that has to be an integral part of it. So we determined that there would be three principles. And after determining that, realized that those three principles actually support each other anyway. And what are they? Yeah. yeah. The first one is really intense quality. And the mm-hmm. second one is environmental stewardship. And the third one is customization. So if we are developing something that is a very high quality and has environmental stewardship as part of it cl- and is customized, clients aren't going to get rid of it. 
if it's a really good quality, it's an investment piece, then it's something that people are getting because they really want it and it's meant for them. It's customized to be theirs and the quality gives it the longevity and the sort of the long-term. Well, you're talking about creating heirloom pieces. Exactly. Yeah. Which I loved. And also you're using, which I think is so fascinating, the reclaimed lumber. We do. We have that as an offering as well. Gosh, it's been a couple of years now, bought up a large batch of reclaimed white oak that is part of structures that were built in the 17 and 1800s. And when those trees were cut down, they were probably 400 years old. There is no old growth really anymore. We're talking about wood that's potentially seven to 800 years old. (laughs) And we have that and it's a completely different type of aesthetic. It's gorgeous. It's dense. The same tables that we make, let's say our little side tables, if we make it out of the reclaimed, it's about twice as heavy because the wood is so much denser because it's existed for so long. The grain is so tight. It actually broke our carpenter saw the first time he cut into it. (laughs) I know it's amazing. It's, it's gorgeous. And it tells a story and that's a, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a bonus too. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. touching something that's been touched by hands hundreds of years ago. I love that we have that as an offering. We also, the the new wood, which has a different look, is FSC certified, all sustainably managed forests, and actually from the Pacific Northwest. Can you tell me about what, I'm not going to say it right, Ucotec means? Yeah, I I pronounce it Ecotec. I'm actually not sure who, which You're probably right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Belt Uko people. <laughs> we'll ask uh, IKEA, I guess. Ecotech is a company that certifies chemical free textiles and they have different ratings. I actually recently discovered there's another organization that has a more stringent certification. So now we're pursuing that as well, but we just don't have it yet as an offering. But mm-hmm. the mill that our linen comes from is Ecotech certified. So we have what we call a standard offering on all of our upholstered goods. And then you can also customize it because it's a trade-off as well. We would educate you that if you are doing a COM or a COL, you are impacting what we have already sourced as certifiably sustainable. But Mm -hmm. if you're customizing it for your client and they're going to keep it longer because of that, then that is also sustainable because we have a big problem in this country with landfills getting filled with furniture. I I love this for so many reasons because your furniture is, even though I don't love this word luxury, it is higher, it's premium, it's a high, it's high end. It's a, a price point that is worth the investment for the creativity and the way it's executed and all of that. A lot of clients and designers who I come across who have this mindset and this value of stewardship are afraid to enforce it because Mm -hmm. they don't think their clients will pay for it or it's not important to their clients. And my argument is that if you were given this, it is for a reason. This is now is the time to be educating people. How do you, because it's, it's not even a negotiation point with you, they're getting that. when they come to work with you. So how do you handle objections? Do you get objections? Can we speak to that? Well, that's actually 
why quality is the first principle of the line, because I have had clients who come to me and say, I want sustainability, but not if it's going to up the budget. Well, that's off the table with me because I don't even talk about it. I'm, I'm going to show you and present to you, not just out of my furniture line, but I'm a designer who works at that quality level anyway. Mm-hmm. So we automatically incorporate that into what we do. And I tell clients, even in our intake calls, we present aspirationally. A client's going to tell me their budget and I will respect it. And obviously we filter through budgets anyway. But if I know that there's a piece that is a much better piece for the project and it's pushing the budget, I'm going to show it to the client and then it's their choice. Mm -hmm. So I don't lead with sustainability. It's just automatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's your value. Yeah. So I remember the Facebook post where you said, I'm not normally the kind of person who does this. I live my values. You started to become very vocal about things that were happening socially and in the culture and not just with respect to environmentalism, but with respect to the whole country, because those things are intertwined. As we know, policy affects the way we treat our planet. So I'm curious why that was important to you? And were you afraid that your brand or your business would be hurt by that? I actually hadn't really thought about it in relationship to my brand or my business. I think I typically tend to be in my personal life. I am not someone who likes to get in the fray. I like to just kind of lead by example and just be kind of quietly, occasionally challenging people, but without getting into, I'm not a screamer or yeller (laughs) or a drama person. Over the years, I've definitely been active in and active within my family. We live in Berkeley. I mean, we're very involved socially and politically, but I'm just not someone on social media like that. I have this feeling that it's probably the southerner in me, but it's sort of a matter of like decorum. But then also I want to be taken seriously. And so when I do say something, I want it to have that level of gravitas. But the riot on the Capitol just really put a line in the sand. And I felt like this is ridiculous. And if we are not publicly stating or condemning or supporting what is right in this moment, then you are absolutely putting yourself on the other side. And that just became very clear and apparent. And I don't know if my thinking about not wanting to join the fray prior to that actually had any impact when I finally did speak up, but we've crossed a line and it is time for all of the people who have been this more silent, I think definitely majority, to condemn the wrong side of history right now. Let's talk a little bit about feminine leadership, because when we met, one of the things we talked about was as a woman, being an entrepreneur, and running a family, and you have three children, Mm -hmm. was not modeled for you. 
So it's True. new territory. Yes. For a lot of us, it's new territory. You talked about being someone who supported other people's stories and you weren't feeling as much like you were your own. But by the time we revisited our work together, you were in full throttle embodiment of your own story. Yeah. You have such can a you... good memory. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how that shift happened for you yeah. and then and then why you believe it's important to live both callings as it were. Yeah. Well, of course not at all coincidentally. It all coincided with the initial work that I did with you. I was already pushing against that feeling. We all get that feeling sometimes of like you just have this instinct or this voice or or this feeling of discomfort. I'd been pushing against that for years. And I think that's sort of the the universe telling you to wake up. Letting go of the responsibility of, I guess motherhood is a way to describe it, but it was also just all of the stuff I was taught to care about as a woman that I was kind of making myself care about. And I can't say I always really felt like it was a priority was we're in triage. And so it was like, if I looked around and it wasn't really a value to me and not only a business value, because that was a big part of it too. I wanted to have my professional life and I wanted to cultivate that. And I wanted to have my creativity filtered through that or invested in that. But it was also, do I really want to go nag my kids about picking up the stuff or do I want to sit down and spend time with them? Mm-hmm. And and it was sort of understanding the triage was just like the word. We weren't really like hemorrhaging or anything, but it was just sort of my internally, I don't care if everything is perfect as long as I'm getting value out of that moment. Mm-hmm. So that was what opened up that permission to start to let go of a lot of that stuff that I felt had always been my responsibility and to just free it up for what was actually important. You definitely helped me realize that. And in doing so, my entire personal life transitioned. And I think it was something that my husband and I both wanted and needed. We both woke up to a lot of a lot of everything socially and personally as well. And I'm kind of forgetting how long ago this was, maybe like six or seven years ago now. It's been quite a while. And through a lot of personal growth and therapy and internal familial struggles with kids and all of that, like it's been a long, me transitioning from one career to another, finding value in what I'm doing just personally, as well as financially, I, we just completely redefined our personal lives and my husband and I did it together and Mm -hmm. definitely something that I was pushing for, but he was 100% on board with. And so we are just living a different life now. I almost feel like it's well because it's you because in, you joined the story. You joined the story and started to I did. To share I did. And creation of the, not responding to the vision, but creating the vision. It's it's so much broader than just our marriage. Mm-hmm. To give him some credit, he realized that as a white male, he was the subject of every sentence, and he realized he didn't like that. <laughs> he didn't want that, and that included my position in our relationship which included both of our positions in the world. Both worked really hard. I mean, 
it's not even, we don't work anymore. I mean, we work at it, but it's just, this is how it is now. And I think we're both happy. Our relationship is better and our family is much better because of it. People forget that visions are shared. And so if you all are operating with an equal viewpoint on that vision and you are in the same family and you share the same values, it will be complementary. Yeah. And that's not always the case, but I do see this time and time again when the woman steps up and makes her vision a priority, it is in harmony with what the husband is doing. And actually they are able to achieve much more than if he was simply leading, quote unquote, leading alone. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually rare that I, uh, or if you come to me here, <laughs> you're, you're not, you're, it doesn't work for me. I have to have balanced I partners. I have, I work with partners, feminine leadership. Do you think there's such a thing as feminine leadership? And if yes, how would you define it? Absolutely. Yes. I think for sure. I don't know how there couldn't be. I don't know if everyone senses it the way probably you and I do, but there's definitely an awakening happening and it's been happening for a while. And women have to, not even just women, I know feminine can apply to the way men do things as well. There's something that women have been gifted with through millennia of not being equally voiced in society. And there has been, obviously, that is repressive, but there's also a skill set that you develop just to survive. And that gets passed through generations. And now that we are waking up and claiming power, this sort of superpower that we have is going to be a part of how we lead. And so Mm -hmm. I think what we, you know, generalizations, but I think feminine leadership involves much more strategic and critical thinking, much more self-reflection, and much more long-term planning. I am here. I exist. This is what I want to do. This is how I feel. I'm going for it. Which is a tip more typically is that I'm laughing. No, I'm laughing because I love I love that description. <laughs> no, because it is it is very it's it's me centered. Me, yeah. me, me. Right. And that's, yeah. And, and feminine, what I quantify as feminine tends to be more about we. It's just the way that society has been. It's not, this is not to make enemies out of men. They are very much becoming our allies more and more, at least the ones that have, that are open to the feminine paradigm. But there's typically taught from birth, especially white men, I would say, that they have value because they exist. And I think other people at the table have to find where their value is. That puts you in a different mindset. And Mm -hmm. if there's a gift to being a little bit self-questioning and and self-reflective and being thoughtful, once that voice is now awakening to its power, it's going to be a more inclusive and accountable source of leadership. The issue that we are finding right now within, especially within the business world, is that there was sort of an attempt at feminine leadership, but done in a masculine way in the early 2000s in particular. And that was sort of marketing masquerading as mission. And I think Mm -hmm. we're seeing the struggle with that right now. And I'm thinking about this a lot because I don't want our mission to become a marketing tool. 
Mm-hmm. So, and that's, I was going to say, we see the exact same thing in the, in the green world. Like, yes. you know, brands, luxury brands have, have gotten on the eco-sustainable yeah. bandwagon in droves because they understand those are values that millennials are interested in and Gen Z are interested in. But we want to make sure that it's actually real. Right. Yeah. Right. Because we have landfills up the wazoo because buildings are collapsing in Florida for right. seemingly no reason, yeah. but there is a reason. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's that feeling that I was talking about earlier. When you start to kind of feel your hackles going up a little bit, I try really hard to listen to it. And the more I hear green, sustainable, whatever, I'm sort of like, but I, I just, I almost feel like that's wonderful that it's becoming a value, but we have to make sure that the value is substantive. You can't just have a mission blanket, maybe you're not great deeds. And so I think that that has to be something that feminine leadership has to constantly be thinking about and ensuring that their principles are aligning with their practices. And I think that that's something feminine leadership will do. A more masculine is sort of like, we said we're doing this, let's just move forward because here's our profit. Would you complete the sentence? My wish for every other woman is to be the main character in their story. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Oh.